This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today is a very special guest, Darren Mooney. Hi, Darren. Hey. Hi, Duncan. How are things? I'm good. I'm good. We are actually recording uh, at Darren's place in, in Dublin because I'm over here for the holidays. So thank you for having me. Thank you for hosting Primitive Culture. The Primitive Culture World Tour begins now. It does. Uh... It does. Yeah. Well, I always like to kind of get out of the house and uh, and do this show in, in random <laughs> locations. So it's uh, nice to be able to say we're, you know, we're, we're doing one in a different country now. So. I, I do. I like the idea that you can sort of build up to doing it while doing certain activity. I think Primitive Culture while bungee jumping would be an interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I was thinking primitive culture on the bus we could definitely do one of them or on a boat that's what uh, Clara and I were talking about last time maybe you know that's a little maybe, cruise I mean, you, could, you could talk about like water in Star Trek and Star Trek's relationship yeah. the, the metaphor the nautical metaphor at the heart of it definitely I think definitely. you could do Nicholas Myers movies while on a battleship would be the perfect sort of synthesis there it would be ideal yeah <laughs> or even I suppose really what we should be aiming for is in space Primitive culture in space. That's something to, It's you know, good to have a... To that, that's your 100th episode. That's yeah. the special thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> not to set the goals too high. So, Darren, I mainly know you from X-Files podcast, from, from Tony's X-Files podcast, but I think you've you've guested on Trek FM before, haven't you? I have indeed. I did uh, an episode of Standard Orbit uh, right. with Zach talking mm-hmm. about the third season of the original Star Trek and how it is secretly the most influential piece of Star Trek ever produced. Ah, it's not interesting. the most influential, but it's secretly more influential than I think people give it credit for. So yeah, it creates yeah, a lot yeah. of concepts that we take for granted, like Kirk the Lady Killer, Honorable Klingons, that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. it was kind of, I was rewatching it recently and it was kind of interesting to sort of dive into that a bit. It's one of those kind of areas that I suppose, uh, you know, it has a bit of a reputation. Maybe people often skip a lot of those yeah. episodes. A bit like early next generation, I suppose. People say, you know, oh, oh don't bother with the first two seasons. Yeah. And then actually, if you do that, you, you know, you miss out on a lot of good stuff. Yeah, and you also, I think, miss out on the evolution of the thing as well, because it's it's always fun to watch from beginning to end. And I think, yeah, you you being a historian and this being a history podcast, Mm. it's great to get a sort of a holistic view of how something evolves as it goes, Mm. as something sort of changes. And if you jump in on the third season where Pillar takes over the next generation, and that arguably sort of sets the tone for the rest of the Burman era, you do miss like the awkward first two years where they're building it. You can see the blocks sort of coming together, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also miss out on a lot of racism and sexism. But I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, you, know. you got to take the rough and smooth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you miss The Measure of a Man, which is, you know, yeah. the classic. And, and see, you know, some other pretty decent episodes in there as well. Yeah. That, you, you know, are definitely well worth going into. But anyway, we're not here to talk about the, <laughs> the, the first, first few seasons, seasons of Next Generation. We're actually here to talk about Voyager today. But we are, <laughs> but we are talking about history. We're, we're talking about... 
I suppose the extent to which it kind of struck me rewatching some episodes this week that of all the Star Trek series, I think Voyager is the one that seems to be the most interested in history and the most interested in not just in the past, but in our relationship to the past, in historiography, in uh, nostalgia, in ancestry, all these kind of topics that sort of circle around this idea of, you know, the relationship between then and now. Somehow, for some reason, Voyager coming at that point, kind of mid-90s, seems to really tap into that. It really does. Well, I mean, I'm rewatching Voyager as well. I'm covering it on, on my blog as well give mm-hmm. that a shameless plug again when I was watching I was struck primarily with how 90s it was and one of the things like about the 90s as a decade is that while we were living through the 90s uh, my you know I, I came of age in the 90s my memory of the 90s is this sort of hazy muddy period where there was nothing specific about it whatsoever and it was like okay well everybody else got to live through you know the Cold War or the Second World War they got to live through these big historical moments and the 90s had none of that and it's kind of weird now when you have 90s nostalgia when you have stuff like say Jurassic World you have stuff like Independence Day Resurgence even the X-Files revival to get mm. back to talking about the X-Files you have this sort of fascination with 90s pop culture at the moment that sort of like tries to put a finger on what the 90s were and what they felt like and when I was watching Voyager I had this huge rush of blood to the head going yes this is exactly what the 90s felt like because <laughs> it, it had that sort of moment where you have like in Fight Club which came in I think 2000 2000 right where Tyler Durden said you know that monologue where it's like the you know we are the middle children of history mm. you know we have no great war no great struggle our great depression is our lives mm. that sort of existential crisis and you can mm. see that I think when you watch Voyager and you're right to point out that like Voyager has this recurring fascination with history with our relationship to it and, and with how we remember it and it has this sort of it reminds me a lot of the debates that you had during the 90s like because obviously I think Philip Wegner and the historian described the 90s in probably the best way that I've heard it described which is life between two deaths where you had on one end the collapse of the Berlin Wall and on the other hand the the attack on the World Trade Center and like the collapse of the Berlin Wall meant that that was the end of the Cold War and I think like you know the end of history in inverted commas although now we might scoff at it and then you had the attack on the World Trade Center which led to the creation of like the war on terror and so you had these two big ideologically defined eras and then in the 90s, you just had this sort of lacuna. You know, was it, was it, it was Wells or somebody who said that, like, after the 9-11 attacks, history came back from vacation, <laughs> which is a really great line. Yeah. But, like, in the middle of this, you just have this big period where we're wondering what it all means. And you're right to sort of single out Voyager's sort of interest in history. So, I mean, episodes like, for example, well, to be honest, the third episode of the season, of the first season is Now and Again, yeah. which is a time yeah. travel episode and which mm. establishes the idea of the reset button. But, I mean, even then you have episodes like, for example, 1159, in which Janeway, you know, delves into the history of her ancestors. You have episode like Living Witness, mm. where the Doctor is taking into the future so we can provide an objective account of history as it occurred. You have episodes like Remember, which is explicitly a you know, Holocaust denial episode. Mm. You have episodes like Distant Origin, which is about like digging into a national myth and sort of disputing whether or not that relates to like what really happened. So you have this sort of thing that runs through Voyager, this engagement with history, and that's before you get into the time travel episodes of the Bran and Braga era, which begin in the third season. So, you know, every episodes everybody knows, like for example, Future's End, or, you know, sort of timeless, that sort of stuff. Mm. Or even, even Endgame at the very end. Like Voyager was very entangled with this idea of history and what we remember of history and how we engage with history. Definitely, definitely. And I wonder whether partly, you know, maybe that's partly to do with the time that it was being produced, that it was this, you know, as you say, this kind of time, sort of liminal time in a way between historical uh, eras in a sense. Equally, I wondered if it might be that somehow, even when it started, Voyager already felt like kind of late Star Trek because there'd been all that stuff before it, you know, and then going into, they had their 30th anniversary quite early on, wasn't it? Like yeah, the second or third season, I The think. end of the second season, starting the third season with Flashback, yeah. the Sulu episode, which yes. was filmed at yeah, the yeah. end of the second season 
broadcast the same right. episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, I just sort of wonder whether that kind of plays into it because you get, you get various things in Voyage. You get an interest in, you know, allegorical representations of real world history. You know, you talk about Holocaust denial or, or, or so on, you know, and there are lots of other World War II related stories yeah. in there. Something, again, it has in common with the X-Files, I think, this idea of kind of guilt and, and legacy, you know, the and legacy that. of the Second World War. Yeah. Exactly. But you also get, you know, both these these uh, episodes which seem to be about kind of the trickiness of history or the mm. untrustworthiness of history, Living Witness being probably the best example of that. But you also get this kind of interest in the show's own history. So you keep getting these episodes where they go back, you know, Relativity or Shattered, and they go back into the show's own kind yeah. of early seasons. And again, I think one of the things that maybe we could talk about is the relationship between history and nostalgia, because... I think that's a kind of interesting sort of seesaw in some ways. And with Voyager, it's always kind of... I think both of those things are quite important to the show in a way. And it certainly is a show that has a lot of nostalgia for Star Trek's history, but also for its own history. And I think particularly as you go forward, I mean, my take on it is kind of that once you get to the fourth season, you get to the introduction of Seven and Nine, you get this show that is kind of going in quite a different direction from where it started. It starts off Voyager in this quite kind of pure place somehow you know and if you think particularly if you think of the relationship between Captain Janeway as a character and Seven of Nine as a character you know Captain Janeway is very much not sexualized she's very much this kind of sort of idealized 90s feminist vision yeah Hillary Clinton in space exactly Hillary Clinton in space yeah Seven of Nine is quite a regressive image in a sense exactly yeah that's the kind of Brannon Braga influence Brannon Braga-ization of Star Trek (laughs) in a sense in a nutshell it is is right there I do wonder if some of that kind of nostalgia that Voyager has for the show itself is to do with that sense that this is a show that has changed quite radically as it moves forward and that there's something about that innocence of those early seasons that they in a way always trying to get back to somehow. Interestingly enough I, I would argue that it goes even further back than that like and, and you're right to point out that and this is something that isn't like discussed nearly often enough is like Voyager is obsessed with the Second World War. Mm. So you have, for example, in the first season you have Jutrell, which is a, story, a nuclear bomb story. You have, mm. like, in the fourth season you have the Omega Directive, which is, like, we just discovered atomic power and stuff like that. Mm. You have all these sort of themes and ideas that bubble back. You have this really weird sort of fascination with the communist scare that runs through episodes like uh, Cathesis, uh, mm. early in the first season, where Tuvok is basically, it's a communist infiltration story. It's invasion of the body snatchers on Voyager. In the flesh, where they discover, like, you know, that Cold War fear that the Russians had, like, a uh, Potemkin villages yeah, of yeah, Americans yeah. like that they were trained to spy which is basically that in space but I think that even if you go back to the first season of Voyager there's already a nostalgia there for what I think Star Trek used to be and you hear a lot when you read Infused with say Pillar and with Taylor which is, is interesting because they were both like relatively new to Star Trek on the next generation but they mm-hmm. talk about and you're right when it says maybe it's because the franchise was 30 years old but they're talking about like Star Trek as this legacy and this back to basic sort of attitude like so for example Voyager takes a ship out of the Alpha Quadrant, which the next generation of Deep Space Nine had built up as this big, like, empire sort of realm with continuity and history. So you have you have the Romulans, you have the Klingons, you have the Cardassians, you have this history that goes back decades, you have this sort of trapping of politics and all this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and basically dumps Voyager in what is the Delta Quadrant, which is what is revealed to be basically this little place with no history, with no sort of sense of continuity. It's got no empires in mm-hmm. it. It's largely episodic. Like, if you look at Caretaker, Caretaker... It's quite consciously an attempt to get back to Star Trek as wagon train to the stars. Mm. The point where the Kazon and, and like 
there's a separate podcast in talking about the Kazon. Okay. Uh, but the Kazon are many things, but part of what they are is an attempt to create like this old school sort of 1950s Native American sort of like Red Indian sort of threat mm. to the European settlers. They're these sort of, they're the guys with bows and arrows or with stones in their hair. So it represents sort of a primitive threat to this encroaching civilization as represented by Voyager and its technology and stuff. And I mean, even if you go beyond that, you look at stuff like the Vidians and you have this idea of the Delta Quadrant as a place that is less advanced technologically and in terms of civilization than the Alpha Quadrant. So you have this idea of like getting back to the adventure of the week format. I mean, you would even argue in Caretaker Chakotay, who again, is a separate podcast onto himself mm-hmm. um, but he's presented as this sort of like stereotypical Native American guide character mm-hmm. he's presented the same way as uh, Toto is in the no not Toto the Lone Ranger right yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. that's sort yeah. of like that supporting Native American character yeah. uh, who's there to enable and sort of offer spiritual advice and even to do like he, he treats his spiritual beliefs if you look at episodes like the cloud like sort of performance art for the rest of the crew mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. you know I'll take you on this sort of spirit guide journey never mind the fact that I've spent my entire life preparing for this and it's a hugely important spiritual deal for me culturally mm. you just want to dabble in it for an episode or two Let, let's do that let's go with that mm. uh, i've known you for six months we'll, we'll get into that it'll be fine <laughs> but like i think that when you look at early voyager there's an attempt to get back to like what star trek was in the middle of the 20th century like what science fiction was in the middle of the 20th mm-hmm. century so like stuff like finding the 37s where you have like the floating like americana the truck floating in the wilderness yeah and you have this yeah, sort yeah. of like people who've been abducted and taken to a planet far away where they start a new sort of civilization. Mm. So I think that the, that nostalgia that you talk about there was very much already built into Voyager from the start. I do think you're right, though, when you say in the fourth season it becomes a lot more reflexive, where you have episodes like the Voyager Conspiracy, where yeah. Seven of Nine right. basically looks through with it like the lens of a continuity-obsessed fan yeah. and tries to <laughs> tries to retroactively like tether together all these events. You have Relativity, yeah. where Seven of Nine goes back to before the launch and Caretaker mm. and into the middle of, I think alliances in the second season mm. you have for example fury where kes shows up and she's mega 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 irritated yeah and she goes back in time and tries to sell voyager to the, the bedians you have shattered mm. where the entire history of voyager is sort of laid out as a smorgasbord for chakotay to explore yeah. and sort of wander through you do have that i think and you're right that it begins with bragging you have this idea of like voyager's own history being fragmented yeah. and scattered and sort of like something to be explored and picked through which is really weird because unlike say Deep Space Nine where you did have this weight of history moving through it where you had like characters who had like arcs and development like Bashir is fundamentally a different person in Emissary than he is in One mm. Leave Behind with Voyager many of the characters stayed in place like I can't tell you a difference between Chakotay in Caretaker and Chakotay in Endgame yeah. but for some reason Voyager has this interesting like, this fascination with like smashing up Chakotay's timeline and going well let's meet Chakotay from the third season let's meet yeah, Chakotay yeah. from the first season like they're the same character like, <laughs> i can meet chakotay from the first season right now all yeah. you need to do is just go to the bridge yeah no it's true i mean it, it's interesting though that you um you, you know you mentioned the voyager conspiracy and the idea of the kind of obsessive fan i was just thinking about enterprise i know with enterprise brandon braga had this real issue with what he called continuity pornographers yeah um and his view was that the fans were so kind of and i guess this was sort of early days of the internet and they were so they were getting more feedback and they were getting more criticism and he sort of felt like this obsession with continuity was kind of strangling Star Trek in a way. So it's strange that at the same time he has this kind of desire to go back and desire to kind of 
rehash things. I don't know if it maybe it comes out of all good things being so successful. Yeah. And, and that's kind of maybe the almost the starting point of that idea of, you know, okay, so let's look at next gen, let's let's look at where it came from, let's look at where we are now yeah. and kind of put those things against each other. But but definitely towards the later seasons of Voyager, you're getting that again and again and again, this kind of obsession. Well it's fantastic that you mentioned like Braga as like a bashing of continuity pornographers. And like there's this really weird thing that like Braga famously said that like one of his conversations with Gene Roddenberry while well, Gene Roddenberry was alive was Braga had not watched the original series mm. and Roddenberry said don't watch the original series I want you to come at this fresh mm. it's kind of fascinating then that you get Braga as the man who's like let's go back and do a Star Trek prequel yeah. even though I had not watched any of the original series up until about three years ago yeah. you know and you have this sort of even within Voyager like I would argue like the Enterprise is a logical sort of follow on from Voyager because Voyager is so nostalgic mm. and like Voyager like you want to talk about Voyager nostalgia the entire purpose of Voyager as nostalgia is it's a ship going home. Mm. Like, if you look at, say, the original Star Trek, that was the Enterprise going out to space, new worlds and new civilizations, mm. charting the frontier. You look at, say, even the next generation, like, not as heavy in the pillar era, but at the very start, it was, like, at the very limits. Farpoint Station was the edge of known space, mm. and you were pushing out further than that. And I mean, mm. even in the later seasons, you had, like, first contact with alien species, and you had sort of, like, establishing diplomatic relations, sort of deepening, maybe, rather than broadening the Federation. You mm. have, even in Deep Space Nine, like it takes place in a wormhole that's like a gateway to the Gamma Quadrant mm. that like you keep sending ships through even after the Dominion's like, dude, stop sending ships into our space. We're getting a little miffed. Mm. Like you have throughout the first three series of Star Trek, you have this push outwards and this sort of like American manifest destiny sort of mm. like the universe will be, you know, like will not conquered because this is a very utopian and peaceful idea, but it will be explored and it will be mm. sort of like we will touch every part of the universe and that's fantastic. We'll make these connections like you will have like the human spirit in space. And we get that even in Discovery as well with the first episode of Discovery is on the edges of Federation space yeah. again. So they're kind of and beyond again, they're kind of returning to the idea of the edges of Federation space, yeah. the edges of mapped space. But Voyager, on the other hand, like the premise of Voyager is you have a ship from Earth that gets sent out into the far reach of the Delta Quadrant, places where they've not gone before. And what's the first thing they do? Turn around and start heading home. Go straight home, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it is. And so much of Voyager is like, okay, have we found a shortcut home yet? Yeah. Can yeah, we yeah. take a shortcut home? As opposed yeah. to like dwelling in the wonder of exploration. And it's understandable given the premise of the show. But I think the premise of the show is very revealing in that sense, in that it's mm. like an attempt to get back. Get back to something. To yeah. something. Um, and I suppose the question is, you know, is that something, is that ever possible? Because, you know, they found with Enterprise, they tried to get back to your, you know, this kind of old-fashioned Star Trek. Maybe it didn't quite work. It didn't quite land somehow. I mean, and, and the big question is, you know, can you ever go home again? I mean, Voyager's whole mission is trying to get back home. Then by the time we get to the last episode, uh, what's the toast? It's to the journey. Because yeah. they realise that somehow, it's not to say they don't want to get home, but that getting home is not quite what... Yeah. That they found their own home. Someone like Tom Paris has found a home on Voyager that he never had on Earth. Yeah. And in some ways, you kind of think, people are always saying, oh, I want to know what happens next. And I know the novels go into this and so on. But in some ways, I sort of feel it must be quite sad for them what happens next because they have built up such a family. They've built up such a home on this ship and they're inevitably going to be dispersed and that's going to be lost. And Earth is not going to be quite what they remembered. And I think maybe that, you could see that as one reason why in Voyager you go from the early seasons where there is this real nostalgia for Earth. I mean, I'm thinking of, say, in Death Wish, you have Janeway kind of looking out at, Earth, at the window and window. Window, that kind of Earthrise image yeah, yeah. almost with her, you know, Kate Mulgrew's sort of Catherine Hepburn eyes yeah. kind of 
gazing at it. And you get even something like Eye of the Needle, that first season episode, I feel like there's that real kind of yearning for home. And it's interesting, you know, talking about nostalgia. The word nostalgia is actually from the words nostos and algia. Algia is like pain, like, you know, neuralgia. Nostos is uh, to do with homecoming. So it's the idea, and it it was coined to describe uh, Swiss mercenaries, Swiss mercenaries, I think, who were far away from home, yearning to go home. So that idea of nostalgia is very much describing people in the same situation as the Voyager crew. You know, they're far away from home, they're wanting to get home. It's that kind of homesick longing. But maybe that's one reason that that we see this kind of transition from in the early seasons, this nostalgia for this kind of idealised Earth that may may not really exist anymore to in the later seasons the nostalgia is for the journey itself so the nostalgia is to go back to you know see season three when Kess was still around or to go back to you know earlier stages in the show's history and I wonder if this is down to like uh, the, the ratings and the stuff because I think you could argue that the decline in like Star Trek ratings arguably began with the end of the next generation like it, mm-hmm. it peaked it rose throughout the run of the next generation and then it sort of gradually collapsed and like mm-hmm. obviously there were Deep Space Nine happening the middle and there was a clear decline in ratings over the airing of Deep Space Nine but Voyager was the first show that inherited that so mm-hmm. like Voyager like a downward trajectory from the moment that it began in terms of ratings and I wonder if some of the nostalgia is based around that and that mm-hmm. it's like okay well you know at the start we wanted to get back to what Star Trek was in the 60s with like you know Indians and Native Americans and, and this sort of like primitive like get back to the frontier and this sort of stuff and then it basically became okay well actually looking at the ratings now we kind of want to go back to where we were seven years ago and and you're right when you say and it's funny that you should you should point that out when you say Enterprise going back as well like every iteration of Star Trek following Voyager has been a step backwards nostalgically yeah, yeah. so obviously Enterprise went back to the you know the founding of the Federation stuff like that the J.J. Abrams movies went back to the Kirk era and just flat out rebooted them with new actors and they're even technically prequels because they're you know yeah. they're set a few years before the original Kirk era yeah. there's that kind of weird time <laughs> shift so so yeah I mean everything basically has been a prequel since yeah. Voyager which is like so you have literally gone back. You've accomplished mm. what Voyager wanted to do, in a sense, <laughs> uh, in a very literal sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I feel like, and, I, and like, keep in mind that I, I love the Abrams movies. I love, I quite like Discovery. I really like the final two seasons of Enterprise. But I do feel like you've lost something of like the push forward mm. in Star Trek. And I think Voyager, in many ways, sort of marks the the turning point of that. Like I mentioned, the end of end of history earlier, and we talked about like the decline of ratings over Voyager's run. If you look at Voyager, one of the more interesting aspects of it is that it establishes and this is Braga this is all Braga it establishes a stable and linear future for the Star Trek universe like it's the point at which you introduce the 29th century into Star Trek continuity mm. so you start getting this idea of like a Star Trek time core Starfleet time core like for example Braxton in Future's End and Braxton yeah. again in Relativity but you have this idea that like and then this this ties into like the, the idea of the end of history like in the 90s which is and you, the temporal cold war and an enterprise which is sort of what? sort of the same thing but sort of twisting it I suppose on its head it is like that, that's what I would argue is a key shift like because mm. in the 90s we believed that like the, the end of history like liberal democracy represented the end mm. of all things and there was nothing more to do and you know there were no war worlds to conquer so like mm. you, Voyager works on the assumption that Star Trek will always be here like you can extrapolate Star Trek into the 29th century and it will still fundamentally be Star Trek they'll still be wearing those silly little insignia badges mm-hmm. maybe the uniforms will be a bit different but it'll be the same basic logic mm-hmm. and then like when you reach like you know 9-11 in, in Enterprise which coincided with the first season of Enterprise mm. you have this sort of oh my god what if the future's not set mm. what if the future that we took for granted we assumed was going to be there like peace prosperity like the triumph of liberal democracy the federation enduring forever what if that doesn't actually exist and like mm. that's 
where you get the Cold War. You have stuff like Daniels and like you've got the, the Zindi arc and you've got like, oh my God, what if none of this actually comes to pass? Despite the fact this is technically a prequel and you would assume that it is entirely impossible for it not to come to pass. Like mm-hmm. it's like the future is suddenly thrown into doubt, um, which is kind of interesting after the nostalgia of the 90s. It's interesting though as well. I mean, one of the episodes that maybe we could look at in a bit of detail is Living Witness. And Living yeah. Witness, I think, is the furthest point like in the kind of Star Trek chronology. Yeah. I used to have one of those, you know, the Star Trek chronology. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was probably an addition before that episode came out. But I'm pretty sure that's kind of the furthest point in the future that, that the franchise any, ever goes. That the franchise ever gets to. And there is something, and that was a Brandon Braga. Certainly, he wrote the story. I think he came yeah, up with, with the, the story for that and one. Brian Fuller, exactly. Well, which yeah. is it, like a powerhouse. It is absolutely a sort of dream team. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in some ways, it's quite a kind of. It's almost quite a sort of hard science fiction concept for Star Trek. Do you yeah. know what I mean? To sort of take you that far out of your comfort zone, to take you that far to push. The kind of cold future somehow. And as they mentioned in that episode, all the crew have long since died. The Doctor makes this joke about Captain Janeway spinning in her grave. I mean, it's sort of so far forward that it's... It's not even like when we jumped from the original series to Next Generation. It was just about possible, you know, McCoy was still alive. And obviously then Scotty turned up, Spock was still alive. It was within a a life... It was within a lifetime. A single generation. Exactly. It was was kind of someone could remember those times just about. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, even later on, someone like Dax could literally have have lived through those yeah. times many times over or whatever whereas once you if you jump 700 years in the future that is it's it, it's different somehow and I suppose when we're thinking about nostalgia when we're thinking about history and all these things I guess that affects how we relate to certain periods of the past so say the second world war which is what I largely write about is just about within living memory because I mean my work is basically interviewing people who lived through it and then writing about their experiences and I think it does definitely make a difference once you lose that kind of personal individual connection in that way that you can actually speak to people about it which is why living witness i suppose is quite interesting because it again ties into the idea of kind of oral history that idea of uh, you know he's a li- they call him yeah. a living witness to history and that idea that somehow that for voyager seems to be the the guarantee of historical truth yeah. oddly that you know official history can be subverted so we see so that, that in remember as well. origin for example yeah, yes exactly exactly uh well i was thinking of the voyager episode remember where balana torres gets these memories about this kind of holocaust that yeah. happened basically and the official story is that this never happened it's being kind of glossed been... over pushed onto the road exactly it's, it's like stored. I don't know if you, you you know the novel Fatherland Robert Harris novel no. uh, which is set in Germany in the 1960s Germany having won the Second World War and it's all about they're trying to kill this is a big spoiler by the way for anyone who wants to read that novel the, the pause, is... pause the podcast <laughs> yeah pause the Go podcast off, read Fatherland um, and then come back and because join it us. is kind of a, a crime mystery but anyway the, the res- <laughs> I'm going to tell you what the resolution is because my point won't make sense <laughs> History did it, exactly. Um, basically, someone, they are bumping off the surviving members, uh, the surviving people who were at the Wannasee conference uh, where the final solution was agreed because that is kind of the last step in pretending it never happened, in a sense. And so it's very much that idea of what can you brush on, you know, what can you sweep under the carpet of history? And in that Voyager episode, it's this one individual old lady sharing her memories. It is the kind of oral history again. You know, it's someone saying, well, this is my personal experience. I remember it. I'm not making this up. You know, and we see that, I suppose, with, you know, the Holocaust, uh, you you know, Holocaust survivors who go into schools and tell their individual stories and so on. 
And again, you know, in the I'm trying to think when was when was the whole David Irving thing? Would that have been the around, trial, the, same that would have around the same Probably time? Probably denial it, and stuff. Exactly. I think, so I think it was yeah. only decided in 1999, I think. But it, right, the case okay. would have been going on. It might have been going on during that period. So exactly that idea that you know there's this kind of attempt to subvert the truth somehow. There's yeah. this attempt to kind of brush over what's happened and and the importance of kind of reclaiming that and reclaiming the yeah. integrity of what happened. Well, I think that that's important because like, it's important to, to say that like Voyager in terms of and this is probably something that's true of the Expos as well is it arrived at the moment mm. where stuff like the Second World War and the Holocaust were slipping from living memory. Mm. You had stuff like say Schindler's List where Spielberg as well as doing Schindler's List he also organised a project as well to record statements from yeah. survivors and stuff like that and the idea was that because it was slipping from history and I think there was also to be honest I think there was a discomfort with the idea of like postmodernism in the 90s mm. so this idea that like history was not an objective truth and I think you, you sort of saw that in the States where you were arguing about stuff like the treatment of, of Native Americans and the d- discussion of slavery in classroom mm. but in terms of European history it, the Holocaust is the big one but you have this sort of this idea that like as this stuff slips from memory all of it's up to for grabs mm. like you no longer have like good guys and bad guys in history you can argue any which way you can have like Irvin arguing like this this horrific like fan fictiony version of history which mm. has no relation to the facts mm. but he can he can build a little he can get a little string of text here a little string of text there just enough to grant it a veneer like so that you want to believe it and, like it's but kind it's of like a conspiracy theory it is exactly. it's the same kind of approach. it's a narrative yeah it's a yeah. narrative of history that supports a particular worldview mm. and it has no relation to facts and I think like it's it's interesting like we're recording this in like the end of 2017 mm. going to 2018 <laughs> like this is an era where facts we live in a post-fact era. Exactly. Alternative but, facts. It's yeah, yeah. fake news, this yeah. sort of stuff. And I think you can see some of that in the 90s. You can see that some of that anxiety, I think, in, in shows like The X-Files, mm. uh, where like covering up the past is a huge deal. Mm. But a lot of stuff in The X-Files was like taken directly from like examples. So like the, the idea of Nazis being honoured by the US government for mm. the work they did in the space programme. That's that's not X-Files history. That's, that's mm. real history. It's just we just threw some black oil and colonisation stuff on top of it. Mm. I think that when you look at Voyager, Voyager has a lot of the same anxieties. It's like, well, if the people who lived through this stuff are passing away, like if we are so far removed from what actually happened that we're relying on secondhand accounts, well, who writes those secondhand accounts? Mm. And what political points are those secondhand accounts bolstering? And that's a big deal in Living Witness, Mm. where the idea is that you have this horrific sort of past that's existed between these two cultures. But what they've chosen to do is they've chosen to agree amongst themselves to write a version of history that demonizes Voyager in order mm. to justify their political beliefs. Mm. And like you have the Doctor rejecting that. And it's not just, you're right when you say it's not just something that comes up in. Like Living Witness is the best example of it. But it's also a, something, a, a fundamental part of like Remember. It's a fundamental part of Distant Origin as mm. well. Where you have this idea of, you know, who writes history and, and what does it serve? And it also comes back and say, you know, 1159 which is the big millennial episode mm. in case you wanted more proof that Voyager was a 90s TV show yeah um, but and again they got it wrong I mean that's the thing is these con- it's not just the interest in history it's the idea of getting history wrong yeah. isn't it and the importance of getting it right and I suppose Memorial is another one you know this long distant event that has to be recorded, uh, recorded and re-experienced and I suppose that's part of it with the Second World War I think there's this because it's this lingering legacy of guilt and kind of and this idea uh, Seven of Nine talks about it in one of those episodes she talks about you know what the guilt 
guilt of being a Borg does. And she says that it, it's sort of morally instructive, basically, that if, you, if you're if you aware of the things that have been done wrong in the past, I mean, this is a kind of a truism in a sense, you, you know, that we, <laughs> we, you know, we study history so we don't make the same mistakes or whatever. But that on some more personal level, it's important to feel the shame for the things that have happened, you know, to really yeah. kind of connect with that. To own, Yes, exactly. To own that kind of shame in order to imbue yourself with that kind of moral direction. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's not, it doesn't work in the sense of it's too detached. You have to kind of experience, you have to, and again, that, it comes back to this idea of what is our connection to the past? Because again, I was thinking of, I mean, this is slightly different, but, but thinking about nostalgia, there's the episode One Small Step, which is about yeah. this kind of future nostalgia, because it's not nostalgia for us, because it hasn't happened yet. It's science fiction for us, but for them, it's nostalgic history. Yeah. It's this kind of iconic moment in history. And Seven of Nine says in that episode, she sort of says, what's the point of this? You know, you're you're risking people's lives to go and collect this meaningless artifact. And Captain Janeway has this speech where she sort of says, you know, it's important for us to connect tangibly to our past for, to make it mean something yeah. to us. And you see it in First Contact as well, where Picard is saying how he wants he to touch. It, yeah. He touches it exactly with his hand. And the importance of kind of reaching, reaching back, I suppose, through time and trying to connect with the past, which is very much what ancestry is about, you know, reaching back to your ancestors and trying to kind of learn about their real lives, trying to connect with them as if you know them somehow, yeah. as if they're more than just, you know, names on a family tree. Empathy, yeah. It's, it's mm. the idea of like transcending the, the bounds of like person-to-person empathy mm-hmm. and like extending beyond that and like trying to imagine what the past felt like. Um, and I think you're right, actually. And it's kind of interesting when you when you mentioned One Small Snap, I also thought of Friendship One, which is mm. another another Voyager episode that more tangentially touches on the past. We have this idea of a Federation probe that was sent out and seeing yeah. the legacy and the consequences of that as Voyager sort of journeys back. You have mm. this sort of like like journeying to the center of a tree or like going through the various rings almost, mm. uh, which is an interesting sort of metaphor for the for the journey of Voyager. You have like this idea of like exploring the consequences of decisions that were made long ago. I guess one interesting area here is that to many people, nostalgia and history are in opposition to each other and for me this is something that I'm quite aware of because I write you describe me as a historian I think I I have never described myself as a historian though I've often been it's, described it's, as such it's not for you to take the label no, I know, the I know. Label well, it, it, that's, that's sort of what it's, it feels like because I, I don't never feel never yourself a writer it's like you have to wait for somebody else to call you yeah, a writer before yeah. you've earned it it's like exactly you know, Duncan you're a historian it's exactly okay. well there you go I mean I write about history I suppose I write about the past so maybe I am a historian I'm not a kind of professional I'm not an academic historian I suppose that's what I mean you're and my, my approach to history... The book that I'm familiar with you is literally <laughs> titled Star Trek in History, isn't it? No, it's okay. called Star Trek The Human Frontier. But anyway, my point, I suppose, is in my own work, because what I do is, is basically history through ordinary people's eyes. So it involves a lot of interviewing. It's very personal. And and I, I believe in that. I think that's important because I think if you only get the kind of kings and queens and you only get the kind of political history, you don't necessarily understand things, how people, how ordinary people experienced it. So if you look at something like the Second World War, I'm kind of interested in a person who was just trying to get by, put food on the table not get blown up in the blitz you, you know the kind yeah. of ordinary experience in a sense I think that's important but it's interesting because the books that I write are on that sort of boundary between social history which is sort of you know reasonably respected if not by really snobby historians and nostalgia which is not really a respected genre it's seen as kind of more disposable it's seen as a kind of almost a guilty pleasure somehow yeah. if you buy a nostalgia book it's because you want to sort of revel in this kind of fantasy of the past and so on and there's also a question about marketing you know what kind of cover do you slap on the book do you make it a hardback or a paperback and so on how do you kind of negotiate those issues so I'm quite aware in my own work there's this like history on one hand which is very serious and weighty and has a lot of footnotes and might be a little bit boring and 
probably too long. There's nostalgia, which is seen as a bit soft and a bit kind of, you know, and people will say, well, how do you know that some, you know, someone tells you something, how do you know that that's true or whatever? And there are, you know, there are legitimate questions around truth if you're, you know, if you're writing about things that aren't necessarily recorded in some yeah. factual, official way. At the same time, I think you can discover things because if you do the kind of research that I do, say you interview 50 people who lived through the same experience, and maybe if one of them tells you something that you've never heard about, have no record of or whatever, you yeah. maybe think that seems a bit odd. I'm not 100% sure about that. If 30 yeah. of them tell you the same thing, the likelihood is that there is actually some, some part of history that has not been, no one has bothered to write that down before. And that maybe, you know, and it might be a small thing, but it is part of our collective experience and it's kind of worth recording. So for me, I have quite a lot of sympathy with this idea that Voyager presents that the kind of authentic individual personal experience is what's valid. And I think it's interesting, even in quite a different episode, author, author, which is a strange example because in Living Witness, the doctor is, is he is the guarantee of history. He yeah. is the authentic voice of history against historical revisionism. And he has that line. He says, you know, revisionist <laughs> history, it's such a comfort, isn't it? In author, author, he is the revisionist historian, <laughs> yeah. basically fictionalising, but, but not really fictionalising, sort of t- telling a lot of elements of a true story and then shifting revising the them. Exactly, so shifting the emphasis to, to suit his particular agenda. And the weird thing about that episode is what swings it in the end is that we see the crew give these kind of oral history testimonies about the Doctor, basically. And it becomes very much about the individual truthful personal experience. That's what kind of wins the case in a sense, is everyone tells their own little story about how I met the Doctor and how he helped me in this way and how he did this and blah de blah blah It's not, you know, (laughs) the logs, it's not the archives, it's not the kind of recorded material. It's not the historical material in in inverted commas. It's the kind of personal testimony in a sense, that is what is going to solve that case, in a way. Yeah, it is. I mean, there, there's a lot of that in, in Voyager in terms of... Like, I mean, Voyager is very interested in this idea of storytelling as well. Like, mm-hmm. And I suspect this is like Joe Maneski's sort of influence on Voyager. But you have stuff like, for example, even as early as False Prophets, like you have this idea of Voyager being a legend that sort of spreads across the Delta Quadrant. You have mm-hmm. it later on in Muse, where Belana sort of gets trapped. And you do have this, this sort of interesting contrast that sort of like winds through Voyager as a question of like, are these characters really people? or are they stories and like are we like are we actual objective people who exist or are we narratives that are cultivated and so like, that? Mm. like you have entire episodes of Voyager where the crew don't actually appear like so, yeah. or where they appear in minimal roles like for example Living Witness where the Doctor is like only a copy of himself yeah. and all the crew that appear are just like holographic representations of course Oblivion of course Oblivion yeah. where they're just duplicates who have basically convinced themselves that they are the real Voyager crew and have to confront this reality that they're actually just sentient goo and but then they choose the reset button I mean famously the reset button has the same effect because in a sense those I mean obviously the people may have existed but the whole story ceases to exist Um, and you don't have you see and I think it's quite important when we talk about the reset button you know you you have had things like say in all good things there's sort of a reset button but if someone remembers it then again it's that idea of personal memory personal experience you know Picard can tell everyone what happened and therefore it did happen in a sense even if it doesn't happen You, you know it's not it's not gone forever it's not lost forever and I think there is something about that terror of, you know, an enterprise with the Temporal Cold War, of things being lost forever and what sort of yeah. obliviated. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which is what you get in Year of Hell. That's what the kind of existential horror of Year of Hell is. And, and Voyager has like several of those. Like Relativity has the same sort of thing. Oh, mm. don't worry, we'll wipe your memories before you dump you. Yeah. Except, uh, do they wipe Janeway's memory? I can't remember. I can't remember. I think Janeway oh, is that. told, but Janeway's told she can't tell anybody. Right, okay, anyway. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of that in Voyager. There's a lot of like wiping it or, or mm. pretending it didn't happen. And there's a lot of like, Course Oblivion's a great example of one mm. where like, and it's got this really mean spirited ending where it's mm. like we have this this record of rec- recollections of the crew our data our personal logs who we are we put them in a capsule 
we're going to launch into space and we'll survive in some way, shape, mm. or form. At the very end of the episode, they pick up something in, in the distance and it's actually Voyager yeah. by sheer coincidence. And they're like, okay, well, don't worry. We'll launch the, the thing and we'll communicate with them and we'll like, well, that way we'll be known and we'll be shared. It's like, oh, no, wait, the, the firing mechanism has, has jammed. Uh, we're going to explode now. Bye. And you cut to the bridge of Voyager and they're like, what, what was that? Oh, nothing, just a blip. Yeah. And it's like that, that entire, like the entire lives of these people are lost because their stories weren't able to be told. And there's a, there's a whole host of those episodes sort of throughout Voyager's run as well. Where you have that sense of like, and I mean, you could argue like even in terms of the reset button when it's not exactly a reset button. Because hmm. um, I mean, like now and again was the third episode of the show and it had a reset button. It's like the reset button is a fundamental part of what Voyager is. Hmm. It's like this is an essential. But Kess remembers something, doesn't she? In that she episode, has a I feeling. Think. Right. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Yeah, I think you might be right. She comes to the bridge <clears> and, and like they're like, oh, we just detect an energy surge. And mm-hmm. she's like, Never mind. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't matter whatsoever. Yeah, like, because yeah. Kes isn't even the viewpoint character in that. No, so Janeway no. is. Janeway goes down to the planet and gets embroiled in their politics and, like, witnesses all these people dying. And it's like, and then oh, forgets about it. Yeah, then yeah. forgets about it completely. Because <laughs> yeah. um, you do have this sort of aspect of it. And I'm like, I wonder if that's maybe part of an attempt to get back to, like, the archetypal Star Trek where you could, like, you could, you could watch an episode and have a sense that nothing had happened to the character since you last watched it. Mm. Or whether it is sort of a commentary on how disconnected we are from from history or how listless mm. we felt in the 90s mm. but like because we felt like it was it was the end of history it's the idea that history was no longer something that happened and therefore there is no future in yeah. a sense so we have we well, have the future these, is now we have these anxieties about the past but the future is almost yeah, I mean, I mean, that's another way of looking at it. So, so we talked a little bit about the way the show kind of envisages our relationship with the past, with nostalgia, with with kind of engaging with history, uh, with ancestry and so on. But this question of how we'll be viewed in the distant future is another element yeah. of it. And, you know, that's the do- that's the situation the Doctor is in in Living Witness is, you know, everyone is dead. It's long in the future. And he gets a glimpse of what is their legacy? What is their, you know, how are they being yeah. remembered? And of course, in that example, it's <laughs> appallingly badly. But I mean, I think there is that kind of anxiety when we think about the distant future there is something kind of cold and something kind of frightening about it I mean I'm thinking say in Doctor Who they had those episodes where they went to the end of time or something and I feel a kind of existential dread of that idea and that you know our sun's kind of gone cold and you know everything yeah. has changed everything's and, ruined exactly and, and you know civilization exactly, exactly earth is you know, yeah. yeah who knows exactly. nobody everything, remembers nobody everything we've done remember. all our achievements all our best intentions all amount to nothing ultimately yeah. in the end there's that kind of anxiety but there's also that idea of, of just how how sort of strange it would be because I mean what we don't see what we don't see in Living Witness is that kind of what you would expect and you get elsewhere in Star Trek like the person who's woken up in the future and they can't adapt to life in the future because it's all techno crazy and and different (laughs) because actually that alien society doesn't seem technologically any more sophisticated 700 700 years more advanced than we are nothing much has happened but I was thinking because I'm in Ireland over um, the holiday yesterday I went to um, a lighthouse in Wexford where my aunt lives Um, and we went on this tour of the lighthouse I went with my two year old son and my partner and they had these uh, projections of different historical characters and I was thinking it's eerily <laughs> similar to the situation the doctor was in because literally we walked into this 14th century lighthouse and the guy pressed a button and this uh, glass screen was hanging suspended in midair ha- hanging by these sort of invisible wires and suddenly the character of a 14th century monk appeared on this screen <laughs> and began telling us the story of how he came to this lighthouse and set up you know set yeah. up the fire to help the ships and so on and I was just thinking and this and this monk was based on a real historical figure, per- figure who's obviously you know someone had written a script and an actor had got Performing. dressed up and performed and so on. But I was thinking, you know, what would the original 14th century monk have made <laughs> if he if he had turned up today and come 
on this tour and saw this version of himself yeah. giving well, this I mean, tour to this group of futuristic people what how would he you know how, how would he kind of process that how would he engage with that how would he feel about the fact that we were all touring his monastery you know his lighthouse yeah. it was a sort of lighthouse slash monastery about it in, like, as a kind of a piece of ancient history and also how much how many of the details about you know even things like the sort of characterization of these people the performance that they're giving you know ha- there's so little information when you're talking about that length of time you know going back to kind of medieval history so so much of it is you know filling in the gaps making guesses the actor kind of putting on a certain kind of performance how, how radically different would it have seemed to that person you know would it have been as bad I mean not as bad morally as the, the latent image thing <laughs> yeah. but in terms of just the kind of details of you know what people looked like how they talked you know uh, I mean there are small details in that episode like Janeway calling Chakotay Chakotay yeah. uh, you know there's, or there's even the tattoo of, on the tattoo being face. the wrong size yeah, exactly. the, the leather jacket the, do- leather, the doctor being an android yeah. and not a hologram yeah. you know these kind of things that, you can understand how it would get yeah. to like Chinese whisper they're like honest mistakes yeah, yeah. in a sense but as opposed you know, to Voyager or crew of genocidal mercenaries yes exactly exactly <laughs> which, which is a bigger know, mistake which would be a bigger mistake definitely but I was just thinking you know what would this monk have made if he'd, he'd suddenly be transported forward in time and saw this bizarre recreation of him <laughs> literally you know hanging on a piece of glass in the middle of the room projecting out of nowhere it's like it's magic basically. well I mean and now you get to the stage with like CGI Peter Cushing where it's not yeah. too difficult to imagine that monk having a face taken from a death mask for yeah. example yeah, and yeah, basically yeah. being not an actor playing him but a CGI representation of him mm. which is just or a hologram yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind of interesting you mentioned something there I want to come back to which is this idea you point out that in uh, Living Witness the like 700 years in the future these alien societies don't seem to have changed much technologically from where they were when Voyager encountered mm. them this is one of the things that I find interesting about Voyager Voyager's perception of the future it presents it as static like it, it tends Voyager doesn't seem to imagine that anything will ever happen that will change the future the future mm. will be what it is now just extrapolated into infinity and you see that even well, okay well you could argue that you see it in the basic premise of Voyager which is Voyager is thrown across the universe mm. and two crews have to come together Starfleet and the Maquis and it's like how are we going to do that and it's like okay well we're going to do what we do on every other Star Trek ship you're going to wear Starfleet uniforms <laughs> we're going to have a clear hierarchy of command we're going to have a first officer a security chief and a helmsman mm. you're going to fit those roles and you're going to fit into them perfectly and you have this idea nothing will ever change and you sort of see that as, as it goes over Voyager like the biggest change I would argue in terms of like Voyager like as the ship goes along the ship doesn't like adopt weird technology it doesn't start incorporating mm. like you know Vidian technology into sick bay or it doesn't start like copying Herogen sort of weapons or stuff like that like when the when the ship gets Borg modifications in Scorpion first thing they do in, in the gift is basically dislodge that and sort yeah. of restore the pristine finish and like even we talked earlier about like Starfleet when you look at stuff like the relativity the sets look very similar mm. to what they do on, on any other Starfleet ship for example there's this idea I think in and even like if you look at say episodes of about the future of Voyager where you look at episodes like for example Shattered uh, which like jumps across Voyager's history it never imagines a time when Voyager or even like before and after where Kess is living backwards with the exception of the disruption of the year of hell like Voyager never seems capable of imagining a future that is different than the present mm-hmm. like it never seems to imagine like a time when Voyager will not be a Starfleet ship when it won't have a rigid hierarchy of command when it won't have people who are familiar staffing it it like it basically imagines that like Voyager is trapped in amber and it will remain so like until the end of time like I think in before and after like the biggest shock is that the doctor is here now yeah like that's the yes. biggest change over God knows how many years. Uh, is that the Doctor has hair. And it, it's got this sort of weird... Like, you talked about, like, this fear, like, you see in Doctor Who, where you go to the end of history, and it's, like, 
all ruins and nobody's around to remember mm. or anything like that. Voyager, I think, has the opposite anxiety, where Voyager imagines that nothing will ever be too different. I mean, even when you go to, say, Endgame, which is the one where the episode skips ahead and it shows what happened when Voyager got home. And I mean, you have horror stories. You've got, like, sad instances. Chakotay's dead, I think, from mm. what I recall. Tuvok has, has a, a, you know, a degenerative illness, which conveniently happened to kick in after the show ended. Mm. Uh, so we don't actually have to show that. But by and large, everybody seems to be doing relatively fine. It's like, it's not as if nothing catastrophic has happened. The Federation has not had to deal with, like, the collapse of the Roman Star Empire. It's like, mm-hmm. we haven't gone to war with the Klingons. There's there's no sense of, like, the situation having changed that much at all. Harry is finally a captain, despite the fact he spent seven years as an ensign. Even compared to all good things, I suppose, where you do have kind of geopolitical changes yeah. in that imagined future. Even, like, Worf going over to, like, yeah. the Klingon and becoming a governor, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. Or the crew drifting apart and Deanna being, like, dead and, and like, Riker being sort of estranged yeah. from the family as a part of that. Or Data being a professor and being a jerk like yeah, data, yeah. data being a jerk is a more fundamental character change than anything that happens to the Voyager kind yeah, of staff it's true yeah <laughs> definitely definitely well I wonder whether also I mean another way of looking at it is when you know when it was announced that Discovery was going to be a prequel I mean we talked about how we, we've had just endless Star Trek prequels in a sense ever since Voyager and a lot of people have sort of said well they just couldn't go further forward you know because I mean I'm one of the fans who've always said you know I'd like to see what happens next I'd like yeah. to I'd like to see what you know what does the sort of collapse of the Romulan Empire look like what does yeah. the you know what's the kind of fallout well, that, of that, that, that geopolitical history I that think it'd be great. fascinating but... I rewatched Deep Space Nine and like it's very clear that they're ending Deep Space Nine with the end of the Dominion War yeah. but like in the penultimate episode before they go into the final ten episode arc mm. like that's dedicated it's, it's inter arma and M. Silent Legion yeah. which is the one where Bashir goes to Romulus but the entire premise of that episode is that like the war is going to end soon and things are not going to go back to the way they are like Sloan yeah. has this big speech where it's like if you think about like what's happened logically there are going to be consequences and changes mm. like the Klingon Empire is not going to be in a position to wage war for another decade mm. uh, the Cardassians are going to be turned into an annexed sort of territory much like say Germany will be sort of occupied by the, the Allied forces after mm. the war so that's going to leave us and the Romulans and that means that we're going to be in a different situation than we've ever been before and we need to actually start preparing for that mm. and it's like Deep Space Nine understands fundamentally that, you know, it's change over a course of history, like over a course of time. Seven years, everything changes completely. But if you look at Voyager, Voyager is very much the exact opposite point of view, to the point where it's impossible to imagine anything ever changing. Like, you get an offhand line of dialogue in Think Tank, I think, where it's discovered that the Think Tank has cured the Vidian phage. Mm. But that never happened while the Vidians were around. You never got to see that, you know? Um, you can never imagine the Kazon stopping fighting amongst themselves. The Herosian, given the Herosian sort of like holographic technology was supposed to fundamentally reinvent their society. But when they show up in the seventh season in Flesh and Blood again, mm. they're still hunters. Yeah. They're still hunting wildly and they haven't changed in any tangible way, shape or form. Mm. Or even like you take the, the Maelon, for example, in the fifth season, where like in the first episode, Voyager like destroys their primary dumping ground. But for some reason, despite the fact Voyager travels like 20,000 and light years over the course of the fifth season with the jump in Timeless and then there's a jump again later in the season I can't remember exactly which one it is but there's several jumps in the fifth season in terms of travel but like at the end of the year 20,000 light years further on their journey they're still bumping into the Malon mm. and the Malon 
despite having like presumably lost their primary dumping ground, are still doing exactly the same thing that they were before. It's really weird for a show that is fundamentally about moving forward. Like it's a mm. movie, like you have with Voyager, you have like a dot in the map, which is where you start, a dot in the map, which is where you end, and you have a linear line between the two of them. There's no sense of movement. There's no. never any real sense. Of, and like you obviously you have Kess gone and you've 709 coming on board, but by and large, you could watch the final three seasons, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh season in any order, and it would make no difference to you. You could watch the first three pretty much in any order, and it wouldn't make any difference to you. I think the fourth season's the only one where you have an actual arc, and that's because, you know, 709 starts the Borg and ends as a member of the crew. But And even when there's a jump, it doesn't really register in any meaningful way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like, I don't know, it's it's sort of like ticking something off a list somehow. Okay, we're <laughs> 10,000 light years closer to home, but it doesn't, that doesn't, but it we're doesn't still feel any different. Yeah. It's still the Delta Quadrant. It's still, Exactly, because the Delta Quadrant just seems to be some sort of amorphous uh, yeah. thing somehow yeah. that you know yeah whatever happens we're, we're, we're in the Delta Quadrant it's all a bit exactly. when we are like you know 15,000 light years from home yeah. and these are guys who the first episode established as like scavengers with mm. like really poor technology mm. how the hell do like people within Neelix's living memory get like 35,000 or 50,000 light years closer to Earth than we are mm. it's like Voyager's attitude is uh, it's Voyager's pretty much been running in place you know yeah. I wonder though whether this idea about you know this inability to move forward to move into the future to sort of envision this post-Voyager Star Trek series that many of us would like to see. You know, you get this idea again and again. People say, oh, it's all been done. You know, that you can't go any further. The future in the 24th century is is sort of perfected. You can't go any further than that. I sort of wonder whether it's, you know, obviously when the next, when you started Next Gen, so, so you went from the original series to Next Gen, you had Gene Roddenberry around really spearheading it. And he was able to sort of reinvent his own yeah. franchise somehow. I wonder if it's sort of, there's some kind of anxiety. However much Star Trek has changed and however much people have been willing to move the goal posts a bit to kind of reorder things there's some kind of anxiety about imagining what the next step would, would be, be uh, and not having Roddenberry around to kind of tell us well yeah 100 years later they're going to be, be doing mm-hmm. this I mean is it is it that the 24th century is just so perfect and you know you do see that <laughs> I, with next gen there's this idea of these kind of perfected people but I, I've never subscribed to that idea because I think if you look at the most the, the Star Trek show with the most imperfect characters with the possible exception of Discovery given its characterization of Lorca mm-hmm. and, and Burnham and stuff like that but the char- the show with the most imperfect most human or most relatable characters was Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. which was the show before Voyager started like the journey home and before you got all the nostalgia and stuff like that mm-hmm. and I think I think maybe it's not a problem specific to Voyager I think it's a broader cultural issue where we have difficulty imagining things that extend beyond and I think that this is a discussion that we had around say the release of Tomorrowland and around like Christopher Nolan inception in what 2014 Mm. which is like i think as a society we have difficulty imagining an optimistic or hopeful future and like so we have difficulty imagining a world that will exist in 20 or 30 years time with like the threat of nuclear war environmental like collapse and stuff like that which is ironic because you'd imagine that would be what you would when you would need it most and in the 60s even when you had the threat of nuclear war you could imagine a future where we were reaching for the stars Mm. it was like a logical extraction extrapolation from like the apollo program but now we can't seem to imagine hopeful futures we imagine dystopia we imagine like Mad Max, Book of Eli, The Road. We imagine stuff like even Logan or Rise of the Planet of the Apes. We imagine like society falling. And it seems like the only way that we can imagine an optimistic future is like retro futurism. Mm. Is to like remember when the future was better. To quote Dan Quayle, the future was better yesterday. And I feel like maybe that's an issue with Star Trek. Is that like we can't bring ourselves to imagine extrapolating from now into the future in the same way that like you could argue the original Star Trek was an extrapolation of 60s values. I think you could argue that the next generation 
generation was an extrapolation of like Reagan era values. And even Deep Space Nine was in some ways like an extrapolation of sort of like Clinton era anxieties. And even like Voyager when it sort of started to, to U-bend around back in itself was a very Clintonian sort of Star Trek. But I can't imagine now how difficult it must be to try and conceive of like a Star Trek for now without having a basis and going back and imagining what the future used to be like. Like sort of fetishizing, you know, the sort of the Apple Store design of the original series where yeah. you could get back and you could like you have a template for what it looks like. It's like you don't have to imagine an optimistic future because you have an example that you can just emulate and a memory you can evoke. And it's nostalgic for us. I mean, there is yeah. that kind of weird thing, you know, if you think about Captain Proton in Voyager, I think there's a definite kind of link. I mean, I know it goes yeah. back further historically, but there's definitely a link between the cheesiness of Captain Proton and the cheesiness of the original series. Yeah. You know, and you have this kind of action oriented, you have this kind of, you know, you have the, the girl in the skimpy outfit, you have kind of yeah, all these Which is elements, like your Alice Eve in is, Star Trek Into Darkness. Well, yeah, yeah, that's another way yeah. of looking at it. Definitely, definitely. But I mean, I think it's interesting for Voyager, it, the nostalgia seems uncomplicated. Nostalgia yeah. seems quite cosy. It's quite comfortable. It's it's the, it's the Tom Paris with his cars and his TV. It's all quite nice. It's all quite yeah. mild. I think it's interesting in Deep Space Nine, you get the episode Bada Bing Bada Bang, where Cisco makes this quite interesting point about that kind of nostalgia, where he basically says this is inaccurate. You know, yeah. the past was a, a bad place. Um, for people you know, who weren't for, white. Exactly, yeah, for like people them. who weren't white. You know, and this is a fantasy. And there is that sort of element with nostalgia of is it in a sense real or is it kind of an imagined thing but there's also how I mean, we pretend it was well I mean you could argue that that exists with Star Trek itself like mm. we and I like I love Star Trek I wanna, this mm. is when I make this point I always have to say beforehand that I absolutely love Star Trek it's one of my favourite things in the world so whatever I say next I say out of love um, <laughs> as much as anything else so you know you're getting oh, that's getting, quite a build up <laughs> yeah you know you're getting something juicy when, when yeah. I begin with that that yeah, yeah, yeah. but like we tend to remember Star Trek not necessarily exactly how it was and more how we want it to be like so we mm. re- remember Star Trek as this liberal utopian ideal and like in the original Star Trek we think of like Kirk kissing a horror like mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, you know was that the first interracial kiss on American TV well first of all it wasn't because you had I Spy beforehand but second of all we divorce that from its context like Plato's stepchildren has Kirk and Ahura kissing as a grotesque sideshow for a bunch of all powerful aliens it's, mm-hmm. it's not a kiss it's a sexual assault mm-hmm. but we pretend that it was this big enlightened moment where it was like white man black woman kissing and this is like Star Trek liberal idealism sort of pushing forward and you get a lot of that and you tend to forget that like for all the great episodes like for example Errand of Mercy where you had this sort of scathing criticism of the Vietnam War or you had stuff like for example Devil in the Dark which was this beautiful sort of exploration like racism and, and otherism and stuff like that you also had this sort of reflexive quality in other episodes where you had stuff like a reactionary quality you had stuff like A Private Little War which was based or uh, was it Friday's Child which was basically uh, Vietnam is good we should be doing more Vietnam we should be investing mm. full time in Vietnam and this sort of stuff and you have like the, the horrible sort of racialization the Klingons where they're basically like hori- you know bronze face they're mm. sort of yellow face like Fu Manchu menaces like we tend to forget and we tend to gloss over that because we like to imagine Star Trek being like idealistic and liberal I mean even when you talk about Voyager Voyager is perhaps the most like right wing and reactionary Star Trek show in that you have episodes like the Kazon like the Kazon are, are pretty racist um, coming out in the context of like the Los Angeles riots and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, they're very much like a racialized other. They're they're freed slaves who turned into barbarians, mm-hmm. which is deeply, deeply racist. Just to be absolutely clear, yeah. you have, for example, episodes like Displaced, which is uh, you know 
how Trump views immigration, which is about a bunch of aliens who mysteriously start showing up on Voyager and seem friendly and polite. And isn't it great that we meet new friends on this journey? But no, they're secretly coming to take over Voyager and replace yeah. its crew. <laughs> um, you have episodes yeah. like, for example, Day of Honor, which is a seemingly innocuous romance with Torres and, and Tom, where Voyager meets a bunch of refugees. And isn't it sad that they, they've been dispossessed and they've been harmed by the Borg? And shouldn't we try and help these people? No, they're mercenaries. They're going to hold our warp core ransom and try to use any means necessary to force us to bend their will. Mm. Like Voyager, Star Trek is always... Definitely had... compared to, say, when Deep Space Nine did a refugee story, yeah. where it was much more complex somehow. Yeah. Exactly, sympathetic, but also recognising the, yeah, the, the problems that you have. The difficulties around that. Yeah. But yes, exactly. They, were, they didn't turn out to be villains at the yeah. end of it all. Which is, yeah. Voyager has this sort of mean streak running through it. And I mean, like I love Star Trek. I think Star Trek's fantastic. But when we talk about Star Trek's liberalism, and when we, we tend to be surprised at like certain reactionary aspects of, say, the fan base who mm-hmm. react with like horror to things like Discovery. There is like there is a basis for that in the franchise's history that we tend to gloss over because we have a nostalgia for Star Trek itself. We have like and that's mm. what I think when you mentioned Voyager's on problematic nostalgia, which is like through the embodiment of Tom Paris, like mm. he has like he, the first season he has like this old style pub which is uh, you know from France from when his academy days but mm. might as well have come from the 18th century yeah. you know you have his Venus sort of fantasy in like life signs you have in the third season you have this sort of club med resort you have then you in the fourth season you start getting stuff like his um, the workshop the author mm. workshop where he does his stuff you have then you have spirit folk you have this sort of nostalgic Irish village we won't go that, into that that could be a whole episode in yeah. itself I think um, but you have in the seventh <laughs> Yeah. season you have like this 3D sort of theatre which evokes yeah. sort of yeah, like yeah, yeah. 50s science fiction and yeah. even on Enterprise they carry that over and they do like movie night of these old science fiction monster movies. Which is interesting because that's I, I was going to say is is Tom Paris a kind of Branham Braga character yes. in a sense yes. because I think and what's interesting about Tom Paris is in some ways you know you say nothing changes on Voyager he is a character who does change because all his rough edges get smoothed off and he becomes kind of rehabilitated but he becomes rehabilitated partly through these kind of nostalgic things so and in, it's it's strange isn't it because we start off with Tom Paris is a kind of chauvinist he's a kind of he's a he's a bit of a, an unpleasant guy his relationship towards women is is pretty shady but worth it's noting his middle of, name is Eugene by well, the way well that's an interesting <laughs> point definitely <laughs> yeah. it's, it's definitely a very backward kind of attitude yeah. by 24th century Standard. you know Starfleet standards and at the well, same time all his nostalgia is also it's he's also a bit of a dinosaur he's a kind of cultural dinosaur <laughs> yeah. because he's obsessed with the past he's obsessed with this he's the guy they call in rosy version yeah. of to examine the truck in what was it the 30s yeah, yeah, it's like, exactly. Yeah, this exactly. is our expert. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. And it is very different from, say, you know, in the original series, you had Marla MacGyver's. Yeah, you know. Well, I mean, that was yeah. not that was not a great example. <laughs> but at least notionally, she was on the ship as a historian, like yeah. she was a professional historian. Tom Harris is the sort of amateur enthusiast. And I think it also raises this interesting question of he's nostalgic for things he's never experienced. And that is perfectly possible. I mean, people are, you know, people feel nostalgic for the 1930s. They haven't lived through the 1930s. They're sort of elements of the kind of glamour, elements of versions of the past or like the 1950s and yeah. and you know that that idea that Cisco says well it wasn't all like that or I'm thinking of there was that film what was the film with Julianne Moore and her husband turned out to be gay and it was very much that a kind single of man, a single man and no it was before that who, who was the husband of Dennis Quaid I think oh okay it's going back a while but it was very much peeling back the kind of image of like the perfect suburban 1950s yeah. a bit like Mad Men did later on I suppose yeah. you know the kind of the, the, well even like Pleasantville for example exactly, exactly. Pleasantville yeah, same thing same thing again yeah 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 
Yeah. Sort of recognising that beneath that there might be darker or more sort of gnarly or more complex emotional landscapes beneath that kind of veneer of perfectly presented nostalgic idea about, oh, the past was better, the past. I mean, it's, you know, make America great again. We've yeah. got it now, haven't we? It's exactly, you, you know, you're, you're right. This is the year of kind of trying to return to this past. That never and existed. Does, and ne- it never existed. And that's the interesting thing is, you, you know, as they say, you can never go home again. There is that idea that nostalgia is... On and some Voyager's level, a, a longing though. for something impossible. Yeah. yeah, but Voyager makes it possible. That's the that's <laughs> yeah. the interesting thing about Voyager as a project. Is it kind of Voyager says you can go home again. Yeah. You know, in the first episode we have you, you know set a course for home. At the end of the last episode we get the same thing: set a course but for you, home. Uh, so weirdly, nothing they never has get changed. Yeah, nothing yeah. has changed. They they, really you're right. They never get there. Yeah. They never quite get there. Yeah. But but it's an ideal yeah. which appears to be possible. It's meaningful. It represents something to them, doesn't it? And yeah. um, you know, they can kind of. Maybe not to Seven of Nine, who sort of questions it, but to the vast majority of the crew, they can they can engage with it. And I think as an audience, you can engage with it. You do feel, certainly in those early seasons, that kind of longing for them to get back and that sense of kind of being separated from their home and being homesick and so on. So it's kind of an interesting area. They're sort of dancing around all these kind of issues of the, you know, the past and the future and, and where do we find this place in it? But then they have this one thing that they kind of pinned everything on that symbolises yeah. everything that they want somehow. And maybe they never quite answer the question because they refuse to show us what happens next yes. of was it all it was cracked up to be? Was it possible to go home again? Did did life pick up you, you know, where, where they, they left, left off, it? Yeah. Or realistically, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, so actually, I just want to go back to you talking about like Tom Paris as a Bran and Braga mm-hmm. insert because there is a certain element of that. Because like one of the things Braga did when he took over Voyager was he pushed it more towards like, and you can see it even in like the seventh season of The Next Generation where you mm-hmm. have episodes like Genesis, uh, for example, or mm-hmm. Sub Rosa, mm-hmm. where like Braga, or even like the sixth season with Schisms, Braga has this huge interest in weird six, weird sort of 50s B movies. Yeah. That, that is a nostalgia unto itself. That like Braga in some way seems to imagine like Star Trek as a vehicle to tell the stories that like Tom Paris had watched in his 3D theater. Mm-hmm. So you have like Darkling in the third season where you have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with EMH. You have like uh, Macrocosm, which is these, these 50s B movie computer generated viruses. You yeah. have Scorpion, which has like these computer generated monstrosities in there. You have like this thing that happens throughout where you have this very B-movie quality to what happens on Voyager mm. um, that I think in, in some ways is also nostalgic of itself and in some ways like you can see that in some ways Voyager seems to be programmed by Tom Paris where it's like okay well now we're going to meet the Vidians and they're going to be plague monsters but they're going to have like it's going to be like Nazi death camps they're going to operate Nazi death camps because like that's what we expect from a 50s B-movie you're going to have like monsters that are like the 90s equivalent of like puppets which are CGI animated, like giant stabbing viruses, for example. Mm. You're going to have stuff like weird mutations. You're going to have like all this sort of icky stuff. You're going to have the mail on, like, was it Juggernaut, where it's basically Phantom of the Opera mm. on like a runaway train. Yeah. You have this sort of like, even within the stories that Voyager tells, even when they're not about nostalgia, they frequently feel nostalgic. You can sort of see Tom Paris in some ways as an insert character in that sense. Rewriting the story. <laughs> yeah. like, like in sort of worst case scenario. You know, rewriting the narrative as it goes along. And definitely, I mean, Voyager is a show that definitely has a kind of major course correction at a certain point. And whether you, you know, however you feel about it, I mean, I feel nostalgic for those early years of Voyager, partly because I remember, you know, I remember watching Caretaker in my biology teacher's uh, science lab after school because he he recorded it and put it on for all of us. You know, I sort of remember being a a young fan and the excitement that surrounded that show, more so than Deep Space Nine, although Deep Space Nine is 
you well, know, probably Sun my favourite Star Trek sitting. series. Yeah. Exactly. Voyager was the one, there was a lot of excitement about it. It felt like it was doing something new to begin with. It has and the best premise of any Star Trek show, yeah. which is like, you're going to cast two people, two crews that will never work together. A bunch mm. of terrorists, a bunch of Starfleet officers who thought they were on like a one month cruise. You're going to throw them together on the other side of the galaxy without any friends, without any support, and they're going to have to find their way home. Like, mm. That's the premise pretty much of Battlestar Galactica, yeah. the, the reboot. Yeah. Uh, and Ronald, in some ways, a part of me wonders how much of like Battlestar Galactica was Ronald Moore basically giving the middle finger to Brandon Bragg on yeah. Voyager uh, being the, the sort of the however their relationship their creative relationship sort of that was gone, at that yeah. point yeah. but you have this sort of sense of Voyager has the best idea of any the best core premise of any Star Trek show mm. and it just squanders it and part of me wonders if some of the nostalgia in Voyager becomes nostalgia for the lost premise because you can see at certain points in the run one of the issues of Voyager was Berman Berman wanted a very conservative very safe uh, and like Brian Fuller is the, the guy who's mm. talked about this like Berman wanted a very safe very conservative Star Trek because apparently he couldn't get it on Deep Space Nine because mm. uh, more uh, sorry more and Bear mm. were like more assertive on Deep Space Nine about what they wanted to do to the point where they would famously lie to Berman really yeah Berman would say basically I, I want this I want this you can do the Dominion War and it's yeah, like yeah. okay well, one or two episodes like okay maybe six six yeah, episodes yeah. like okay <laughs> and it lasts two years that yeah. sort of stuff yeah, yeah. and you have basically on Voyager well also Voyager is launching their network isn't it so yes, it's a big corporate I mean Voyager I think has all this kind of corporate responsibility yeah. that Deep Space Nine didn't have that even Next Gen didn't have because of the way it was syndicated, syndicated right yeah. so they had with Next Gen they had a kind of freedom in a sense yeah. and Voyager is maybe the first series that is is straightjacketed by that and, yeah. and one way of looking at it I suppose is there is always this kind of element of and, and we've heard the stories about Enterprise and the interference coming from the suits and saying they wanted you know a boy, <laughs> boy band, band in there, there. Yeah, exactly my favourite my favourite Enterprise interference story is around the second season which is when the, the suits began properly interfering I think that was around the time the CBS got involved right. yeah, yeah. Bragg and Berman who had traditionally been left on their own to do their own thing started being dragged into meetings with hires up in the networks to explain the plots of upcoming episodes mm. And Berman was not used to doing this. And, and Berman basically laid out this pitch for the episode Minefield. And Minefield is the episode where it's actually one of the better episodes of the second season mm. where one of the lead characters ends up like with a mine pinning him to the hull of the ship. And he goes into great detail about the, the plotting of the episode and what yeah. it's going to be about. And he goes on for about 15 minutes. And then at the end, you know, there's this awkward silence as the network executives sort of look at one another and uh, pause then one of them sort of, you know, gently like raises his fingers to say, "I have a question." It's like, "Burns, uh, like, okay, what's the question? Uh, what's a hull?" <laughs> um, like that's yeah. that's the level of studio interference that you had, yeah. like meddling in a show without but any. They have no understanding of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought you were going to say something different. I thought you were going to yeah, say, no, but okay. it's the perfect emblem for the situation there. <laughs> you know, literally like nailed to the ship and unable to, you know, not having the freedom to move yeah. around. And I mean, I read uh, an essay about Enterprise, which was sort of looking at those early two seasons and commenting on the number of episodes in which people end up being tied up, imprisoned, <laughs> incarcerated. <laughs> you know, they're, they're basically their freedom is. is constrained one yeah. way or another which is odd for a show which is about exploring the new frontier and you yeah. know they're trying to get back to this idea of the kind of freedom of, of you know going out there for the first time they're just constantly being kind of locked up or yeah. you whether know, by the network or, or by their own exactly yeah, yeah. As well. kind of strangled creatively strangled in a sense and I think that brings it back to Brandon Braga's sort of continuity pornographers thing where yeah. you got a sense with the early seasons of Enterprise that at times they felt sort of strangled by continuity and strangled by strangled history. by everyone yeah. basically <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah and I mean the other thing of course that you know talking about Rick Berman what Rick Berman would say about the you know the decline in ratings and late Voyager and, and in some ways something that beset Enterprise was this idea of franchise fatigue and I think when we think of 
I mean, I'm a bit skeptical about the idea of franchise fatigue. I sort of think there's maybe more creative fatigue. Yeah. I think it's that's that's his way of blaming the fans for the fact that their the quality of the product <laughs> was, was declining well, to a large extent. But there is one way of looking at it, which is that maybe this idea that Voyager represents kind of the end. You talk about the end of history; it's the end of Star Trek history yeah. in a sense. Is this idea that time is sort of running out? The future is kind of is running out. We're kind of running out of steam somehow yeah. for this journey, and that's why we have to keep going back and go back further and further, you know, yeah. back into the past and get into these prequels because somehow in the past there was this kind of energy and this kind of drive that somehow has sort of petered out by this point because I mean, of this kind of fatigue. There's a great interview, like, and one of the things I actually I would recommend picking up the Enterprise Blu-rays for is there are these wonderful interviews with, with Braga and I'm, I'm actually more sympathetic to, to Braga than, mm. than most fans would be mm-hmm. but like he talks about, he, he ran, he worked on the shows for what, the better part of 12 years? Mm. Like from the fourth season where, when he interned on The Next Generation mm. uh, through to basically the, you know, the end of Enterprise and like he talks about there was a moment when he was working on Enterprise where he he literally knew he had no more in him, yeah. But he had to keep going, yeah. And you're like, you're you're wondering, like, that's that's horrific. How did how did they get into this situation in the first place? How did they not move forward? How did they not pass the reins on? Try and embrace new visions and new possibilities. Like, at what point did they stop? And I think like you point out, the fourth season of Enterprise is probably I prefer the third season to be mm-hmm. honest. But the fourth season of Enterprise at least has a bit more energy to it, in large part because they surrender a large part of the control to Manny Cotto, mm-hmm. uh, who is at least a new a new vision. Now he he's very fixated on Star Trek continuity. He's very fixated on Star Trek history and stuff like that. But he's a fresh set of eyes and he's got a lot more energy. Mm-hmm. I think to be honest, that's part of why Deep Space Nine works so well as well yeah. because they surrendered control to Iris Eve Bear, who had. He worked on the third season of The Next Generation, obviously, mm. uh, but he had, you know, he'd only worked on one year of the show. He'd worked under Michael Pillar, and he'd sort of graded at that, and he had his own vision of what he wanted to do. Mm. So Deep Space Nine, like, after the second season, I think you pointed, like, the Maquis part one and two as the point where everyone went, okay, Voyager's important now, Bear, you, you steer this, this is yeah. your job now. And that's the point where Deep Space Nine suddenly starts going, in many ways, completely off the rails in terms of, like, Star Trek terms, where it starts getting a lot more cynical, a lot more bleak, a lot more, like, nihilistic, and a lot more questioning of what Star Trek is. Mm. But it's also the point at which it becomes more creatively energized. Yeah. I think Voyager never had that because Voyager, like, Voyager underwent a lot of creative change. Like, in terms of, like, Pillar, you know, left in the first season, then came back in the second season. Then you had a mutiny, then he left at the end of the second season. Taylor took over for the third and fourth season, then Braga took over, you know, in theory from the fifth, but had been steering it from the third. But mm. you you never had, like, a proper changing of the guard creatively. Like, mm. Braga was there from the beginning. Like, Braga wrote, I think, was it Parallax, the second episode of the Did show? You, right, yeah, um, yeah. And he basically, like, he was a huge influence from that point onwards. And by that point, he'd already been writing Star Trek for the better part of four years. Mm -hmm. He'd already written a feature film in Generations and would write another one in First Contact. You had this weird sense of Voyager's reluctance to let go of the past in terms of like embracing new creative voices, embracing new perspectives and trying new things. And I mean, Fuller's talked about like when he was on staff on Voyager, he would always push to new things Mm. and he would basically be treated as the brat on staff as a result of that. And I mean, uh, when Moore went over, he talked about how like writers like Michael Taylor and Fuller had basically taken lots of crap from the hires up because 
they wanted to do new things. They wanted to push in new directions. I mean, even if you look at stuff like the fifth season of Voyager, like look at Michael Taylor's original pitches for episodes like Once Upon a Time. Mm -hmm. Michael Taylor's pitch for Once Upon a Time was you would tell the story entirely from the perspective of Naomi Wildman. Mm -hmm. Like you would have no idea what was happening outside the holodeck. She would be basically, Voyager was going through a year of hell situation and the crew would basically put her as the only child on the ship Mm -hmm. in a holodeck to teach her that everything was okay and to like convince her that everything was fine. You would occasionally see glimpses of the outside world coming in with people like scars and the mm. damage and like you know the, the malfunction the holodeck or stuff mm. like that that would indicate that something was wrong but this was too adventurous for the mm. show so you get what isn't a very watered down yeah. very generic very middle of the road story and again with the fight which is the infamous episode where Chakotay suddenly has an interest in boxing yeah. because somebody <laughs> somebody asked Robert Beltran what he would like to do this year yeah. and he said boxing but the original pitch for that was going to be much more abstract and random and sort of like right. again this is the guy who wrote The Visitor for Deep Space Nine Oh, right. Like okay. so, he he mm. pitched an episode that would have connected back to like you know the middle of the twentieth century, the fifties again, mm. but that was shut down. So I could just make it a subspace alien. And you have a lot of that in Voyager where there's a reluctance to try something new, and you instead fall back so on it's kind of conservatism. Isn't yeah, it? it's kind of uh, and and you know to be fair to Brandon Braga, I mean I think sometimes he was trying to push for he he oh, said yeah. to, you know he wanted Year of Hell to, to be, be like a year. Uh, exactly yeah. yeah you know I mean that is a bold and with Enterprise actually he was the one who wanted the first year to be on Earth you know he was West actually Wing trying Star to yeah. yeah trying to come up with new ideas but I mean, he was obviously being squashed is, creatively yeah. by this kind of conservative machine that was sort of saying no we want you know we want more of the same we want this kind of reliable whatever and I'd say it's interesting I mean one very strong season of Voyager I think there was the fourth season you do get with seven and nine you get that very strong arc and I mean I feel seven and nine is sort of overexposed on Voyager but there is there are you know it's that's a good story there and it's told really when they do a lot with that but I wonder if there's also significance, you know, for someone like Brandon Braga, 709 is kind of his ideal uh, character to <laughs> yeah. write about, isn't she? Because she is this kind of 1960s fantasy pinup girl. Do you know She's, what I mean? And there's, I mean, there's, there's also, the, yeah, there's, I don't know how, how, you know, potentially libelous we want to get here, but there is like the famous interview that Braga gave when he was working on The Next Generation, where he was all like, oh, I'm totally into dominatrix sex and all this sort of stuff. Wow, and I'm all into the implements and the harnesses yeah, and stuff like yeah. that. And you could sort of see that in Seven of Nine, who is this icy blonde, Hitchcock blonde, like, and who he Dominatrix. ends up dating. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. And you're like, I don't want to draw too much of an association <laughs> no. or parallel there. But yeah. you, you have that sort of connection there already. And I think, like, you're right when you say the fourth season. The fourth season even has an arc that extends beyond seven and nine. Like you mm-hmm. have the Rogan arc, which is mm-hmm. one of the few points in the series where there is forward momentum from episode to episode. So mm-hmm. for example, they establish contact with Earth um, in, in Hunters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of, uh, oh, well, first of all, the EMH goes over and messes in a bottle. That leads into Hunters where they start getting letters from home. The network is sabotaged, but that leads to Prey, which mm-hmm. is where you deal with the consequences of Scorpion and you have this wonderful story for seven. And even in like in the middle of that arc where you have, is it uh, not revulsion, repression, mm-hmm. which is the one where seven of nine it's it's a horrifically dated and again you want to talk about voyager's conservatism yeah, yeah. it's like it's a date rape accusation episode it's mm-hmm. a false rape accusation episode basically which is really uncomfortable to watch now but even in the context of that episode you deal with continuity where you have seven of nine having been disciplined for what she did in prey yeah and you have voyager going well hey look the heroes are coming we probably need to upgrade our weapons mm-hmm. and then you have the killing game part one and two where they're like okay well you know now you've got this big Herogen story, but at the end we make peace and we go off in our separate mm. ways. Mm. And then the Herogen are gone until the middle of the seventh season. Mm. Like you have 
this clear movement in the fourth season, which you don't have in other seasons. Mm. Um, and I mean, even stuff like the hope and fear, the finale, mm. uh, which pays off like plot threads that began with like message in a bottle and like uh, hunters, where you have this sort of like, ooh, there's a hidden star of the communication. What could they possibly be hinting at? And like, I think that even in the fifth season where Braga takes over, at the start of it, you start to see some of his interest creep in. So mm. you start to see stuff like Janeway becoming more ambiguous. Like, so for example, Night. Night is an episode where Janeway locks herself in her quarters to think about the past. Like she goes back to thinking about and like Braga engages very much with like the legacy of Caretaker in the fifth season. Like that's the season that gave us the ship, the relativity. Yeah. Gave us relativity going back as well. Um, and you have this sort of this theme running through it. You have like the connection with the, you have extreme risk where Balana discovers that the Maquis have been dead and she sort of yeah. processes that. You have this like in the fifth season, you do have an attempt to play with continuity. You have like latent image. Which yeah. has introduces more ambiguity in terms of who Janeway is when mm-hmm. it's revealed that she meddled with the doctor's like personal continuity and his personal history and sort of reset yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Where you have this sort of this this more personal version of a story that you had in Living Witness yeah. about the manipulation of history, where it's not just the manipulation of cultural history, it's the manipulation of personal history and what that means in terms of identity. But then that sort of peters out, and you have basically then three years of generic Star Trek stories. You could watch almost any episode of the fifth season, sixth season, seventh season of Voyager in any yeah. order and you wouldn't really tell them apart outside of maybe quality because I think the seventh yeah. season is not as good. I mean, it's interesting just thinking, I know this is not meant to be a podcast about Brandon Braga, but thinking about <laughs> Brandon Braga and this kind of creative Braga cast. Const- constraints. I, I have a lot of sympathy for no, Brandon I Braga. I mean, I, I think he was probably a bit of a jerk uh, back in the day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think well, he, seems, are, he seems to have improved a lot with there time. Are, there I think, are famous you know, stories about know, pitching. Yeah, you've I've heard, heard the stories about people pitching. I've heard some pitching, uncomfortable stories Brandon Braga, definitely. But I mean, you know, he was a young guy. He got this kind of dream job. I think he you can kind of underqualified. Under, he he yeah. had no like. He was what thirty something, and yeah. it's like here, have this That's franchise that job, is older know. than you. Yeah, and you are in charge of running that day to day. By the way, you can't do any of the stuff you want to do. Yeah, um, like, and I was just going to say. I mean, I think with Enterprise again, you you know, third season Enterprise, that was a really bold attempt to do something different. You know, yeah. he although despite being fatigued, despite being exhausted, despite being constrained, he was he was trying to do something different, but. It it's, it's kind of sad. Then you get, so then you get the fourth season, he, he sort of takes a back seat. And then if you want to talk about nostalgia and the kind of, yeah. the worst kind of nostalgia, that final episode, These Are the Voyages, is like nostalgia gone mouldy, basically. Yeah. I mean, because it's, and it's attempting to sort of manufacture a nostalgia that doesn't really, that but, doesn't land somehow. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't seem to understand the things that it thinks that people are going to love about it. You know, they described yeah. it as this Valentine's, the fans, the fans chucked it in the bin, basically, because yeah. it was awful. And it, it disrespected the actual fans that they'd managed to, to you know, gradually right? cultivate over those last couple of well, years. You want to talk about like nostalgia and history in terms of like the end of, of enterprise. Like mm. that's again, when you talk about the end of history, like it's, it's you're right when you say it's nostalgic on moldy. Mm. because like Voyager always imagined the future would be relatively the same the future Mm. would stay the same into God knows how long and I think that was both a reflection of where the franchise was when Voyager launched which Mm. was top of the world 30th anniversary that sort of stuff and even like the 90s stuff where it's the end of history liberal democracies triumphed and stuff and then basically you have Enterprise where like oh my god the ratings are in decline we're going to be cancelled it's horrible and in the real world you also have stuff like oh my god the war on terror is happening like everything that we thought was safe and stable in the 90s is no longer so and then you have These are the Voyagers which is 
really, really, and you're right, like moldy is the perfect adjective for it because it imagines, like it's built around the premise that, well, it's always the seventh season of The Next Generation. Exactly. It's like, we never and, got know, past, yeah, we never got past <laughs> Jonathan Texas. Frakes has never put on any weight. Or, <laughs> or, you know, or like, bags under his eyes. I, know, or, yeah. I mean, it's as if they kind of, it's, it's as if when they were making the original Star Trek movies, they just put them back in the old uniforms and pretended <laughs> yeah. that only a year on had the old sets, yeah. And refused to kind of acknowledge the passage of time. And yeah. it's just, it's really creaky and, and cringy for that reason because it, it's so, it feels desperate somehow. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. I, I haven't seen it, so I don't want to um, make <laughs> too many comments about it but you know what's the show that Brandon Braga is working on now he's working on the Orville which is basically imagining yes. that Star Trek never changed I mean we've got Star Trek Discovery which you know to some degree is polarising because it does things differently and there are things that are kind of new yeah. in there that people don't like and then there's this other show which seems like this kind of built in kind of conservative vision of you know those kind of TNG 90s Star Trek right? shows yeah. that you that you loved that were, you know, exactly yeah it's, exactly it's, like, we can still do that we, yeah. can, we can do that you know and, and some people love it for that and they and I think that the appeal of that <laughs> show is very much that nostalgia and surely that's why they've, they've you know brought someone in from that era who Brandon Braga isn't being offered the chance to do new Star Trek now because they want to do He's something great new. they want hits, to do yeah. something different exactly <laughs> so they'll get him back to do the, the kind of old Star Trek that he used to do I mean I occasionally wade into certain dark corners of internet fandom and there's a, this really weird movement of Star Trek fandom that is like overly nostalgic and it's like the Orville is the true continuation of Star exactly. Trek yeah. Yeah. no the Orville like it's okay to like the Orville. That's, that's grand. That's that's your business. People like what they like. And I mean, you know, maybe it has its own merits. I watched three episodes and that, mm-hmm. that was enough for me, to be honest. But I mean, you, you like what you like and you can make a defense of it on its own merits. And like, it's clearly trying and it's clearly a love letter. And it's clear that like Seth MacFarlane, for all the hate that he gives, that oh, not that he gives, but that he receives, is trying to do something that means something to him, is, is meaningful and like has value. And if you enjoy that, that's great. But... Like, to claim that the Orville is the future of Star Trek is to fundamentally misunderstand it. It's not the future of Star Trek, it's the past. It's not even the past of Star Trek, it's the idea of the past of Star Trek. It's Tom Paris's hollow program, except it's being aired in 2017. Like, it, it's that sort of mentality. And that's, that's grand if that's what you want. And I would argue, like, my biggest problem with Discovery is that it is too nostalgic. It's too winking. And it's too nodding its own history. It, I would argue that it needs to be more, like, it needs to double down on the elements that people think are provocative about it and just sort of run with it. Because we have this element that runs through popular culture at the moment. And I think you saw it with, like, the reaction to The Last Jedi. I know this is not a Star Wars podcast. You had this weird sense. I haven't sense... seen it yet, so don't spoil oh, it. Oh, I won't spoil it. Okay, I won't spoil it. Sorry. <laughs> How have you not seen Everybody's seen been busy. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> You look at the box office figures, and you have to figure that. Like, well, it's a safe. Bet. I will see it. It'll um, be around for a while. It will. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Think it's <laughs> I do. Those... I do always see Star Wars films, but I'm not. You know, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not my thing. So yeah. I'll get around but to you it. You are but, hosting yeah. a Star Trek podcast. Yeah, I think yeah. it's safe to say. <laughs> but like a large part of the reaction to it, and I mean, it has its own problems. We won't go into. I don't want to turn this into a Star Wars podcast. But part of the large reaction to it has been like its treatment of characters from the original Star Trek, yeah, Star Wars, and what it does is it treats them as characters with their own agency rather than treating them as, like, nostalgic fetish objects. Yeah. Um, and that's a large part of what I think the or the Orville and Discovery, like, the conflict is between the two. I mean, like, you go on the Star Trek Discovery Reddit and, like, there's rules where you can't mention the Orville because wow. every mention of the Orville is a passive-aggressive, you know, well, I'm enjoying the Orville has the subtext of unlike whatever they're calling Star Trek these days. Yeah. And you have this sort of battle within fandom where do you want nostalgia do you want basically 
to be reserved the stuff that you liked as a child and, and to be sort of the stuff that you like growing up? Or do you want something that's not as comfortable, not as, as comforting, but is, is new and different and odd? And it, I remember back in the day, like you watch, and you could argue that this is the difference between Voyager and Deep Space Nine, and that Deep Space Nine was the show giving you what you didn't want. Like people mm. were like, it's a show based on a space station. It's got long-term arms. Star Trek with a war in it? That's not Star Trek at all. Like you look at Deep Space Nine and Deep Space Nine's entire history consists of that's not Star Trek. Um, and, and the fan discourse at the time and even now in certain quarters is that's not Star Trek. But you look at Voyager. Voyager is really the first and I would argue only Star Trek show that aired where there was a consensus that this is Star Trek mm-hmm. in that it didn't push the envelope. It didn't, you know, it didn't challenge the preconception of what Star Trek could be. I think in many ways that's the, the challenge that you're getting at the moment with, say, Discovery and with the, the Orville is that you're basically stuck between these two extremes again. And if you look at history, I think that there's a right side of history. And I think the Voyagers, this is the Star Trek you know and love. This is trying to get back to sort of the 60s mood of Star Trek. This is like, everybody's going to be wearing Star Trek uniforms. They're going to be following, it's going to exist within the Roddenberry box. It's Mm -hmm. not going to challenge any of your preconceptions. And Deep Space Nine's like, whoa, rock star Star Trek. (laughs) Um, History has, I think, come down on one side of that argument, and it's not the side that's Voyager, yeah. uh, to be honest. And I like Voyager. I like Voyager a lot. I feel mm. like I've been very mean to it over these, you know, over this hour or whatever. But I, I like Voyager, but I think it's on the wrong side. Voyager of has a lot of, yeah, it has a lot of charm. It has, I mean, it, it has, it's and this is, it's comforting. And that, I suppose, is what this, you know, it's what Tom Paris, that's why he said it's written by Tom <laughs> Paris. Because Tom Paris's nostalgia is comforting. And it is a kind of softer, you know, it does represent a softening of his character, which is not necessarily entirely a bad thing. And I mean, you know, there is a place for nostalgia and there is a place for that kind of comfort. And, you know, Star Trek is comfort food to some extent to a lot of people. You, you come home, you feel crap, you put on a Star Trek episode and it cheers you up. And Voyager is, is very good for that. And I think, um, well, I mean, you know, yeah, it does have that kind of quality. Off, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like it was, you, yeah. you come home it's from not school daring, and it's on, but it yeah. is. And to be fair, you know, they do. So, I mean, you know, Living Witness is an interesting episode. Yeah. There are some kind of interesting, like, sci-fi ideas in Voyager. Oh, yeah. um, it's just that from the point of view of kind of character and the sort of the, 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 the basic setup yeah. is quite conservative. They're not able to really make you gasp in the way that, say, Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Or even know, like Next Generation. Yeah. I mean, well, the Next Generation is perhaps the safest of Star Trek shows at the moment. Like, it's, mm. it's the one where everybody agrees... That was pretty great. And even The Next Generation, when it aired, was provocative. And like you had fans saying, this is not Star Trek. What mm. the hell's going on? Why aren't they bickering with one another? Mm. Why aren't? Why isn't the Doctor and the First Officer? Why is there racism there? That's yeah, yeah. But even like stuff like, why is the Captain, you know, this British guy who mm. like delivers monologues rather than punching or kicking, uh, mm. you know, doing a double-fisted punch on a guy in a reptile suit. Mm. It's not as if like Deep Space Nine is the only time that like Star Trek's had this sort of change. Voyager is the exception in terms of Star Trek, I would argue, because Voyager is the only time where a Star Trek show premiered and felt like Star Trek, if that makes sense, mm. where there was a consensus going into it that this is Star Trek, which is, is weird. And like Next Generation like was not as provocative of Deep Space as Deep Space Nine, but we tend to forget in its early years how polarizing it was. Mm. How how many fans were like, this is not the Star Trek I grew up with. Because yeah. it was new and interesting and it did exciting things. And it sort of, in many ways, it rejected its own history. I mean, there's a famous story of like Iris Stephen Bear when they're doing Sarek. Like he had to fight to do Sarek in the first place. Yeah. But like the, the three or four hour arguments over the word Spock, yeah. whether he could use the word Spock during the mind meld sequence. And like you have this idea that like for Roddenberry and like, I mean, maybe he took it too far. I think you shouldn't be having three or four our arguments over whether you can use the word Spock. 
But I think one of the great things about the first season, first couple of seasons of The Next Generation is that there was no no connection, no sort mm-hmm. of real tether to the original series. There was a lot of, well, look, we're, we're doing our own thing within yeah. this world. And I feel like a lot of pop culture now doesn't have that. A lot of pop culture is more like Voyager, where it's like, well, you're going to see Jurassic Park. The theme is going to blare as you go through the gates. Yeah. You're going to see there's going to be a big heroic moment for the T-Rex, despite the fact that T-Rex is at this stage, what, 30 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, you have stuff like Independence Day Resurgence, where you're going to get all the greatest hits. We're living in a kind of nostalgic you know if you look at I mean look at J.J. Abrams you know he's rebooting yeah, Star Trek yeah. rebooting, re- rebooting Star Wars yeah rebooting I mean, even Spielberg his, even his, I mean, like, every, his like entire career is I'm not a huge fan of J.J. Abrams I like but, Abrams, but, but yeah. he is like nostalgia is his thing that's yeah. that's but almost all he is and he's good <laughs> at it i'm not saying he doesn't do doesn't make good films but like to me there is there, there is sort of a lack of anything new somehow. Yes, if you think of like the force awakens i mean i quite enjoyed that one but, but i mean it's, it's a new just nostalgia basically yeah. that's all it is and it is and there is something i mean you know going back to the idea of continuity pornography there is something kind of maybe not pornographic but there's a kind of guilty pleasure <laughs> element yeah. associated with like you're not really being forced to to think, think about very new much. things you're not really being forced to do very much and i suppose this idea of you know when they say, oh, oh they can't do a, f- a series set post-Voyager because we just can't imagine it. We can't imagine yeah. what it would be like. It's like, well, that's your bloody job. You know? <laughs> you're that's writing you, a Star Trek series. That's where you are, you're a creative writer. You know, make something up. But that's where you were you when know? the original series ended. Exactly. You couldn't imagine you know, what would happen yeah, 80 years exactly. down the line. And then it's like, okay, it's we like, imagine you know, a British guy who yeah, monologues a lot. Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to get it perfect. You know, just... <laughs> you, it's a Star Trek series. Do something new. Years. You know, yeah, yeah, like, like yeah. as long as your first episode, you know, your third episode isn't as racist as Code of Honor. Yeah. And as long as you don't do anything as awful as like Angel One in your first season. Yeah. By the way, I, I love it when people are like, I'm starting the next generation. I'm going to watch it from the beginning. And you're like, yeah, you, you might want a little bit racist. Yeah. And when, just when you think it's past that, a little bit sexist. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. But I feel like you're right that there there is that horrible sort of like inability. There's too much nostalgia in modern culture. And it's not just like, it's not just entertainment. Because I mm-hmm. think you're right when you say make America great again, evoking mm-hmm. like 50s Americana. Or even like Brexit in the UK, where yeah. that, that's very consciously evoking like a, an idea of Britain as a world power that is, mm-hmm. you know, goes back, like as an Irish person, it makes me slightly uncomfortable in terms yeah. of like, you know, the empire and this idea of like having this sort of global reach. That as an you, English person, it makes me quite uncomfortable. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Um, but you, you do yeah. have, um, you do have that in a lot of modern culture where mm. it's not just like, it's not so much that like we can't imagine fictional futures. It's more like we can't imagine like a real world future. And as a result, we can't imagine a fictional future. So we yeah. can't imagine like, we can't imagine the US being it's a, a world power on its own terms anymore. We have to try and remember what it was like when it was a world power. And yeah. so you, you sort of, you conjure up like this Norman Rockwell images of fifties Americana instead of going, well, look, instead what we'll do is we'll build, we'll, you know, we'll head towards the shining city on the hill. Yeah. You know, we'll build towards that. Instead you say, well, we'll build backwards. We'll yeah. go backwards to when it was, you know, when we were a world power. And you have that with like the UK as well, I think to an mm. extent. Um, Whereas Star Trek should be about that. You, you know, aspirational. that future. Yeah. And Star Trek is very aspirational. So, you, you know, we do sort of want to get to, to that kind of society in some ways, don't we? But, you know, yeah, we're not going to get it by going backwards. So it's kind of, it's fascinating. Like, I think that we started out talking about Voyager and history. We sort of we mm. talked about Star Trek in history in a very broad sense. We have, which but is, I mean, you know, which is nice. It is. Well, this is the mm. end of 2017, start of 2018. So yeah. it's probably the perfect time we're for recording. Election. We're literally recording on New Year's Eve uh, for the benefit <laughs> of our listeners, because this will probably drop in about a week or so. So, so yeah, it's the perfect time really to think about the 
past and the future. And, you know, funnily enough, the last episode that we dropped was our Christmas episode uh, where With Clara Christmas and I Carol. were talking about Christmas Carol. So, you know, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. One of this them is, is the stronger kind of... in, in Star Trek and yeah. popular culture at the moment, I think. Definitely, yeah. definitely. But, you know, maybe that will change. We'll <laughs> maybe. have to see. We'll, we'll have to see in the future. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, what you heard about was a Brian Fuller's original pitch for Discovery, which is going to be, it would take you from the start of Star Trek past Beyond Nemesis. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm actually, uh, it's weird to be nostalgic for something that never happened. I'm nostalgic for that pitch for the, from for last the Brian year. Fuller <laughs> Discovery, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But instead, we seem to be literally stuck in the past. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens in 2018 <laughs> and, and moving forward from there. But it's been great fun talking about Star Trek and history and, and Voyager in particular. Darren, before we go, do you want to tell our listeners where they can uh, encounter you online, where they can find out more about your thoughts? Oh, perfect. I mean, we talk a lot about like 90s pop culture and 90s nostalgia and stuff like that. I actually wrote a book on the X-Files, which sort of delves into this sort of thing. And in particular, the X-Files relationship with, with history and also in terms of the X-Files relationship with like the 90s sort of mood that we we're talking about, like the end of history or the idea that you're, you know, a generation, you know, our Great Depression is our own. We have no future, that sort of stuff. So that's opening the X-Files. It's from McFarland's Publishers. It's available online at Amazon or at Waterstones or basically anywhere where you can get good or even not so good books. So please feel free to, to give it a look. It's currently on sale on Amazon for, I think, about $4. Uh, which is a good good mm. good price I'd argue you can also find me online at Twitter at Darren underscore Mooney I write at the movie blog with a zero in, in the V there but you can just find me by googling me um, I host a podcast which is the 250 where we also deal with nostalgia a little bit where we talk about the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time and we seem to have discovered that the golden age of movies seem to be being 12 in 1994 thank you very much Duncan it's been an absolute pleasure it's been a pleasure thank you for coming on well it's been fun talking about history in Star Trek Voyager but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM this week, so here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. I actually hadn't watched the show, I'm embarrassed to say, um, but I sat down and I started watching uh, and recording episodes, and I immediately had an idea for a script uh, because I found Data to be the most interesting character. To the journey! So you could have, like, you know, carbonated gug. Carbonated gawk. <laughs> I'm trying to understand how this works. So the gawk are presumably a little squishy or juicy on the inside. So you're saying that in order to give them the appearance of life, they replicate it with carbonation inside the gawk. Yes, to make them like pop wow. and fizz. Kind of like an Alka-Seltzer, you know? Like pop, pop, pop and fizz. Candy gawk. Warp 5. And I go into the job interview, and I'm just parroting back to him things he said in his interviews. But he didn't know that I was just doing that. I would say, the thing about Star Trek is that you could write a, it's a mystery one week, and it's a Western the next week. And I'm literally, literally word for word things he said in an interview. So that's how I always feel. And I joke with him now that that's how I got the job. But The 602 Club. When we're talking about the idea of context in history, I think this is the biggest issue that I see in this film. Um, and, and with the, the Force Awakens too. And you put them together because they're going to make a trilogy. Is look, writing 101, if you don't know the past and the future of your characters, you absolutely 100% cannot write their present. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, 
or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended, all